Hey y'all, what if you really could change your life? If there was a way to be healthy and intentional in every area of your life? Good news, there is. And we show you how each week on All of You Whole. Hosted by me, Caroline Fossil, entrepreneur, wellness expert, author, and speaker. Every episode is an in-depth look at how to help you get unstuck, be brave in your life choices, and have a meaningful life all either from my own experiences or from the experts I interview. My goal is to help you build a healthy, connected, and intentional life that fulfills your greatest purpose. I'd never had any health problems before. I was always just like a normal kid who didn't think about food much. And I started getting a lot of brain fog and fatigue and arthritis and weird stuff. So back in 2007, paleo was getting really popular. Yeah. in the military and CrossFit was getting really popular. And so I had buddies just encouraging me to give it a shot. And I was like, man, that sounds so dumb. I was like, food doesn't really matter. Food's not going to change the way that you feel. And even at 22, I just felt like a kid again. Right. After two weeks of reducing inflammation. And I really just got interested in this idea of, wow, I guess what I eat actually does affect how I feel. Today on the show, we get to chat with Pasture Bird founder and CEO, Paul Grieve. We hear the story of how Pasture Bird started with just an idea and a few chickens. Now they have mobile chicken coops to raise pasture-raised chickens. We learn all about what we really need to be looking for when we buy chicken and the unfortunate truth about conventionally raised chicken. You are going to learn so much and you are going to want to buy your chicken locally or from Pasture Bird itself. To get Pasture Bird chicken delivered right to your door, be sure to check out the link in the show notes. So without further ado, let's welcome Paul Grieve. Welcome to the show, Paul. We are just so ecstatic to be chatting with you today. Thanks for having me. Excited. Yeah. Okay. So I first just want to hear the story of how your life transitioned to being in the military to now owning Pasture Bird and owning lots and lots of chickens. How did we get from here to there? Man, you tell me. It's a... It actually started like before the military. I was a college athlete and I just grew up as a city kid. I had no interest in food or farming. It was just like an, I would say like a kind of normal guy. I was bumming on the idea of sitting in an office at like 22 years old, coming out of college. And so the military really attracted me. And I ended up going into sniper school in Virginia. And it was great. I had an unbelievable time, but I contracted Lyme disease during a three-day field exercise. And I'd never had any health problems before. I was always just like normal kid who didn't think about food much. And I started getting a lot of brain fog and fatigue and arthritis and just weird stuff. So back in 2007, paleo was getting really popular yeah. in the military and CrossFit was getting really popular. And so I had buddies just encouraging me to give it a shot. And I was like, man, that sounds so dumb. I was like, food doesn't really matter. Food's not going to change the way that you feel. And even at 22, I just felt like a kid again. Right. After two weeks of reducing inflammation. And I really just got interested in this idea of, wow, I guess what I eat actually does affect how I feel. And so I went to Iraq in 2009, came home and my whole family had taken this like paleo health food journey, which is a lot of us. It's like 25 of us now. Wow. Um, and so I was back and it was Easter of 2012 and we're just 
bumming on not being able to find pasture-raised meat in our local farmer's market or our grocery store. And we were really bummed about the state of like organic and free range meats. And so my brother-in-law was just joking around about getting some chickens for my in-laws backyard. Well, we all thought he was joking. And, and here um, we are. <laughs> 20, 20 minutes later, he comes into the room and he's like, oh yeah, hey, I just ordered like 50 chickens. They're going to be here like two weeks from now. And we we're like, bro, you can't just do it like that. Like, what are you talking about? But lo and behold, 50 little baby chicks came and they Stop. showed up and we just sort of figured it out. And that was how it was born. No. Okay. Yeah. So then at that point, so like on one hand, I'm like, way to go brother-in-law for like, right. like just making it happen, like Holy. wanting something and like just doing it. So I love Holy. that. I like that vibe. But do you, what do you have to build from that point? Were you like, shoot, we've got to get a coop. Like we've got some stuff to do. Did it just spur you into action? So the good thing about having like 25 people in our immediate family in this town is you get all the different personality types. So like yep. me and my brother-in-law, Rob, are very much like we shoot from the hip. We always say like we shoot, then we aim the gun kind of. But we were like, fine. We're like, all right, cool. Let's roll with it. Right. And then a lot of other people in our family were like, oh, no, what's the coop design going to be like? How are we going to brood these chicks? Like, how are we going to source the feed? And all right. like the normal questions you should ask if you're going to raise chickens. And so. Sure. Thank God for a big family. And we kind of went off of our Bible, which was Joel Salatin. He's a farmer out of Virginia, really well known for being like the grandfather of pasture-raised chicken. And so mm. we copied a lot of his designs. If you're interested in that type of stuff, you can definitely look him up. He's all over YouTube and stuff. But we copied word for word what he does and what he recommends. And yeah, we, were, we found ourselves about four or five weeks later, we were all like, okay, four of us guys, we're going to put in 500 bucks each. And that's it. It's just going to be a hobby. It's like a backyard thing. We're never mm -hmm. going to, we don't really have much money to put into it anyways. We were all working full-time jobs at the time. Nobody was like doing this. So we found ourselves like, oh no, $2,000 isn't going to be enough to like raise this whole batch of chickens. What are you talking about? So back then, 2012, we we're like, oh, right, well, well, let's just put a few things up on Facebook and we'll mm -hmm. talk to some friends. We'll see if anybody's interested in buying a few of these because they were meant to just be for our big family. So we put up like a pre-order link and within two weeks, like all 50 chickens were just sold out and reserved by people we didn't even know. And it was like, whoa, that's crazy. It was wow. our first ever time in entrepreneurship. So it was like, we did not expect that. And the funny story is like at the end of their life, so you got to harvest these birds and for non-farm kids, we had no idea what we were doing. So we had like the chicken and then we had an iPad like right next to each other in a tree. <laughs> And we we're like, all right, back it up. How did they do that? And we just taught ourselves how to do the whole thing off of YouTube. And 50 birds became 500, became 5,000 over the course of the next few years. And there was like a really clear demand for this type of food. And we just stayed pretty focused on chicken. We caught a really big break in 2014 when Kate Shanahan, who was the team nutritionist for the Lakers, found out about what we were doing. And Steve Nash and Kobe Bryant were getting towards the end of their career and they were really into bone broth and like ancestral wellness and organ meats and all this stuff yeah. so they told kate go find us the best pasture-raised meats that you can possibly find no matter the cost kind of thing yeah. and so we started working with the lakers as our first ever like wholesale customer back in That's 2014 so cool for us we're such sports guys it was like the coolest thing ever exactly and so encouraging at that young stage of our, it wasn't really a business yet. It was still more of a hobby, but it was still really affirming for us. And then we started, the Dodgers found out about that. So the Dodgers started ordering like right after that too, because they always copy each other. I know they do. They're like, wait, they have a secret ingredient. Exactly, we don't. Exactly. Yeah. yeah totally. <laughs> 
That's we got so our start funny. like in selling direct to people and then pro sports right after that. And then chefs started to find mm. out they had a bigger demand than what we could really fill. So it just, yeah, for like three years, it was like responding to consumer demand around Southern California in a, what we say, like California is such a hard place to have a business. Yes. It's also such a great place to start a business too. We have 26 million people within an hour and a half of our farm right mm -hmm. here. And like, it's sunny 350 days a year. And yeah, the land is crazily expensive and it's really dry, but we looked at all the different things and we wanted to be beef cattle farmers. That was really our real goal, but we had no money and land is really expensive and it doesn't right. rain here. So it was like, well, chicken's probably a better idea because you can raise a chicken from baby chick to harvesting in six to eight weeks. And you can sell the product where a beef cow is going to be a three-year process all in. Sure. Yeah. Wow. That is so fantastic. So I want to talk for a second before we get into like pasture bird and what makes it different. I want to talk for a second about conventional chicken because unfortunately, I do feel like a lot of people are unaware in general of like of, about meat, about chicken, about just how they're raised. So right. can you tell us, and thankfully you don't raise them this way, but I'm sure you're aware of how like the rest of the world works with chicken. Can you tell us a little bit about how conventional chicken is raised? Yeah, I love to do this. And the longer I go, the more I have respect for anybody growing food, even mm -hmm. the most gnarly conventional farmer and still like those people are awesome. And I don't mean this to disparage them or say what they're doing is wrong or bad. I just want it to be a more transparent process. So like people know what they're getting. I feel like that's fair, you know? So about 60 or 70 years ago, chickens really went indoors due to like predation and just wanted to get increased grow out. Like really a hundred years ago, chicken was really expensive. It was like very fancy to serve chicken at your dinner. It was really rare. It would be like maybe once a week on a Sunday. You know, oh, mom wow. Would cook up a really, it was really, really expensive compared to beef. But with the huh. subsidies and grains and like bringing chickens indoors, it became the cheap protein. The way that was accomplished is by really like moving these animals into a stationary barn environment. Animals were really never meant to be stationary. If you look in the mm -hmm. wild, all animals are mobile all the time. They're always eating, pooping, moving. And that's really what like builds the fertility in our soil. If you look at bison or wildebeest right. in the Midwest, like that's how they work. They live in big herds and they move around all the time. Well, in about 1940, 1950, farmers realized that using antibiotics, they could put chickens indoors and still keep them alive. So they're essentially living and eating and sleeping and defecating all in the same area all the time. And I don't mean sure. that it's not gross. It's just, it is what it is. The barns are about 600 feet long, 40 feet wide. They house about 24,000 birds at a time. If you've ever driven through like farm country, <sighs> I mean, you smell them. You, you yeah. smell these chicken houses or it's not just chicken. It's also the way pork is raised and mm -hmm. beef feedlots. It's all these stationary farming models. And you can imagine what they would smell like inside. It wouldn't really even be possible without the use of really modern ventilation. These big, huge whole house fans. Ugh. Blowing it out. And that's why you smell it. It's so, so bad. <laughs> well, and imagine if you're a chicken that's whole life is spent like right. four to six inches off the ground. You right, know? right. There's not a lot for the birds to do. Birds are born with like really sharp 
talons and a sharp beak for a reason. They want to be foraging. They want to be like Mm -hmm. hunting. They're omnivores. They're not vegetarians at all. They want to be digging through grasses and bugs and worms and seeds and like finding things. They are monogastric animals. So they have a gizzard. They can consume grains, unlike beef cattle or humans, which a lot of times have a hard time processing grains. They have an organ called a crop and a gizzard that takes the grains it stone grinds the grains and it sprouts them to make them like nutritionally available to their system, which is super cool. I want that. I know. I was like, I want to, I want to have a crop. How cool is that? You know, cause I really I struggle with grains, right? but I can eat chicken and I really, you know, like a beef cow, I can't right. eat grass, but I can eat grass fed beef. Like it's really right. cool how these animals are designed to process things that we can't eat. Right. That's really like the state of the conventional chicken. And you would think like, okay, well, no disrespect to Walmart. Okay. Well, that's how Walmart chickens are raised. So that's how the super cheap ones are raised. Well, that's not the whole story. So to make that same system free range, all it takes is you take one door or a few windows and you pop them open for a few hours a day. And as long as those birds had outdoor access, which is like the most abused term in all animal agriculture is access. Right. It sounds really good to people that don't really know what mm-hmm. they're looking for, but the birds don't really go outside much. Maybe 1% of their life, they would wander out and then they would be like, oh, wait, I'm a prey animal. All my shade and my buddies and my food and water is all back in there. Like I'm going back in there, you know, mm-hmm. they're not just, they're not like a cow or a dog that's going to go run out in a big open field. So the idea of free range is kind of challenged at the outset, even though it sounds really good. It's not necessarily what people think. And then to make that same house organic, and free range, all you would do is you take the grains that they're, you're feeding the chicken and you swap them out for USDA certified organic grains. And you're not allowed to use some of the antibiotics. And essentially that becomes organic free range chicken. So uh, this is, I always say this is Walmart to Whole Foods. This is everything everywhere. all the way across the board. And it, like I said, it's not a knock against people doing it that way. I just want to make sure people understand what they're getting. When they buy like essentially any grocery store chicken or eggs, 99.999% of the production is done that way for better or for worse. And so I always say for the last 50 years, people have asked for cheap chicken and the industry has given them really cheap chicken. Like you can buy a whole chicken for $5 at Costco cooked. How did that happen? Now in the last 10 years though, people are asking for something different. They're looking for nutrient density. They're looking for animals that were raised humanely. They're looking for things that are good for the environment. So now the industry is starting to respond one of two ways. One way is they're doing things differently and they're raising animals differently. That's the birth of pasture bird. That's the birth of a lot of my friends' farms. The other way is through greenwashing, which is like, oh, so what we can do is we can just take our conventional practices and we can just slap like sexy labels on them and we can pretend like we're doing all these things. And people are generally you know, they don't really know any better. So they're going to fall for it. So I have a ton of respect for the industry players that are trying to actually reimagine the way that we raise animals and plants for that matter. And then I really have a hard time with people that are greenwashing and like slapping labels on stuff and taking advantage of really well-intentioned consumers that are trying to move the needle with their wallet and with their fork. Right. And they're like getting tricked. And that, that like really pisses me off. Yeah, no, I totally agree. My husband and I were vegetarian in college and I probably for about five years and it was 
inspired. I mean, Chaz and I came at it from different angles, but I was inspired by just seeing the conditions of the animals and seeing the, just seeing the concentrated animal feeding organizations. And it's just not okay to me, but I'm so glad now to be eating meat for a few reasons, right? Like number one, I do think that we were made to eat meat. I think it's more nutritional for our bodies, but also too, you're treating the animals well. And I do think that you're doing things better. They're more nutritional for our bodies. It's better for the birds. It's better for the planet, for the community around you and for the environment, just regenerating the land. So. It's encouraging to me that you can eat meat and you can produce meat in a sustainable way. And in college, I was making dinner with a friend once and I was probably like a freshman in college and I don't think I was a vegetarian at this point. Well, clearly I wasn't a vegetarian at this point. And my friend's like, okay, let's go get chicken. And I go over to the chicken and I grab just Tyson chicken breast, right? And my friend is like, oh, that's not chicken. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) He's like, that is not. And I'm like, but it's $4 cheaper. Why wouldn't we get this? And he looked at me and he said, that is not the cost of chicken. Mm, And it has stuck with me ever since. And that is not the true cost of chicken. And so what I was just talking to a friend about is this chicken that's 99 cents a pound or whatever that we're finding wherever we're finding it and it's conventionally grown. Unfortunately, we pay for that chicken in other ways. So the communities around that CAFO, there's higher rates of cancer. And then guess what? If it's in an impoverished community, we pay those Medicaid bills, right? So like we're paying for the true cost of chicken one way or the other. We're either paying for it up front, which I try to do with pasture bird and sustainably raised chicken, or you're paying for it in other ways, whether that's that we're destroying the environment or that we're negatively impacting the environments around these CAFOs or whatever. And so... It's just a different way to think about the price of what you're buying. That's such a good point. I have two things that I would add on to that. So what's the value of nutrient density, right? Right. So there was a study done that compared oranges grown like 50 years ago to oranges grown today. And they looked at the vitamin panel. They didn't even look at everything, but they looked at just the vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, and it was nine times higher in the oranges that were grown 50 years ago compared to today. Oh, it's like, well, wait a minute. So if one is 20% more expensive, but you're getting nine times the nutrient density, which one's actually cheaper? Yes. And so we've done the same studies with grass-fed beef. We've done it with our chicken. And it's like three times higher in omega-3, 50% higher in vitamin A and vitamin E. Wow. Four times higher in NADH and ATP and eight times higher in vitamin B12. And so it's like, wow. yeah cost per pound it is more but whoever decided that like cost per pound was the best way to value any food product you know sure if i'm like we have four kids and if i'm feeding my four kids what's the value of giving them those nutrients mm. it's really hard to even value that based on a cost per pound model like it doesn't even make that much sense to me mm. and then the other thing so you talked about the vegetarian and vegan thing and like a lot of meat guys see this like us versus them with people right. that eat vegetarian for me i'm like heck no of our customers were either former vegetarian or somebody in the family was, you know, so it's like this whole intersection, but the same way we just described 
CAFOs with 24,000 birds packed inside of a house. Mm -hmm. The same thing, unfortunately, is happening in kale fields on corn fields. Mm. It's happening in the vegetable farming community. So it's, we're fertilizing pesticide, herbicide, fungicide, right. tillage. Like we're just abusing these crop fields. And sure, you could make the argument that they're not sentient beings. I would actually argue that they, I think all mm. living things are sentient to a certain extent and yeah. like the nutrient density is being robbed from our soil. And so I don't think this is like a plant or animal issue it's like a right. food systems issue and I we agree. just have to figure out how to grow regenerative food and build healthy soil because mm -hmm. the nutrient density is going away and it's in my opinion it's what's causing a lot of the like chronic disease that we're seeing right. just flare up like crazy right now you know well food doesn't have nutrients Sure. And it's even interesting when you think about a lot of our satiation is based on, I have received the nutrients I need exactly. and now I'm good to go. And so it's just a curious thing when you start thinking about all of the stats you just gave us about pasture bird versus a CAFO grown chicken. It's no wonder we are eating more. As yep. a society, we are overweight, we are obese, we are morbidly obese. It just doesn't shock me at all because we're eating, eating, eating like 80% wheat and not yep. getting the nutrients that we need. And so our bodies are still hungry and it's not necessarily hungry for food, it's hungry for nutrients, which causes us to overeat. So that's a great point about we're just looking for the most nutrient dense foods. And I don't think that people make the connection between quality, the way that a food is grown and the actual nutritional component of that food. And I see it with eggs, the local totally. pasture raised eggs I get, like my whole life, I thought of eggs as yellow, like the color of my sweater. No, the yolks are bright, deep orange. They're orange. It's like a completely different color palette. And that speaks to the nutritional density of that egg versus a different egg. So it's cool when you can like actually see it like that, but it's true in meats and in vegetables as well. So tell us this, I know pasture bird has a lot of certifications, but for the general consumer, just at the grocery store, before we get into pasture bird, what kind of labels, certifications, words, even terms, what are we looking for when we're looking for like the highest quality chicken that we can buy? The question I hate the most out of all of them. So I play this game sometimes. It's called you name the label, I'll name the loophole. Yeah. And I'm telling you, every single one has ways to get around it. Mm. And it's really sad because my wife works and we have four kids and it's like you go to the grocery store and you don't have time to get to know every single farm and do all like it's not even realistic at all so these certifications feel like they could be so helpful and you go and you find something like certified humane or you find like global animal partnership or non-gmo or certified organic or there's a million of them pasture raised free range organic biodynamic there's literally dozens of them and i joke that it feels like the side of a nascar truck now <laughs> when you go through the meat aisle, because yes. there's a million different and nobody knows what any of these things really mean. And right. the sad part of it is you could put like six of the labels that I just told you on a package. And if you trace that all the way back to the farm and you walked onto that farm, it would look just like anything else. Mm. It, like what I just described with the 24,000 birds. And it's, I don't know, it's just, it's really sad to me. And it gives 
little hope when I'm like, hey, super busy mom. The only way to do this is to like know your farmer. And that sounds great until you actually have to do it. And it's like really hard. Sure. One of the things I would, Joel Salatin, who's such a mentor to us, he says, there is truly no better time to be able to know who your farmer is because of social media, for better mm-hmm. or for worse. And it's like, I get that there's a lot of bad stuff that happens there too, but it is a way now. So we're doing a podcast. Like we're going to, I'm a chicken farmer. Like now <laughs> you know me, or at least right. you know me virtually. So yeah. it's like such a step up from the just seeing a product on a shelf or something. But no, I have no hope to offer people as far as certifications, <laughs> labels, and attributes is absolutely a depressing conversation. Yeah. And There's you guys so much are... possibility within food. It will yeah. not be solved through certifications, which is a bummer. Interesting. You know? That is a bummer because you guys are not certified organic. Is that right? We're not. And And I remember that was a question that I asked Meredith. I'm curious as to why that is. And I know a lot of it comes down to the amount, the mountains and piles of paperwork and just all the things, audits that happen to be certified organic. I think certified organic has, it was formed with really good intentions, like most certifications, by Mm -hmm. the way. And a lot of people that work in them have the best intentions too. I'm not saying this as a diss to a lot of my friends who are trying really hard to make meaningful certifications. They're pay to play. Right. I'm paying the person who's certifying me. That's weird. They're typically an annual audit at best for the last two years. Not even that. It's like virtual audits. Oh my god! I gosh. can make things look really good for one day out of a year. Mm-hmm. I don't know. How do you rate somebody on animal welfare? Like, right. how do you do that? Good luck. Especially when the context is 99.999% of production is stationary and it's mm-hmm. done in a barn where animals are all in there. I'm not going to write a cert that requires animals to be out on pasture. I'm going to have no clients. So I have to write it for the mass majority so that I can actually fund my certification program. It really sucks. It's, it's really tough. I think yeah. that there's a future of food that's going back to brands with integrity that Agreed. are authentic and that open their doors. And not that we're the gold standard, but what we've started doing is just we live stream directly from inside of the coop. Like you see my Zoom background right now. That's <laughs> our actual birds on our actual farm. That's not a marketing thing. That's really what it truly looks like and a lot of people be like oh but wait they have a roof over them and they have sides or hey you're giving them feed like what's up and i'm like no no those are the conversations i want to have yes because i want you to know exactly what it looks like on our farm like i think Mm -hmm. the future of food i hope is radical transparency and trust and debunking this idea of oh free reign that's a chicken running around out in an open field like no it's not it's no it's not right let's be honest with people I don't think people are that stupid. They, I think that they would prefer to know what's going on and be able to know that there's a real person behind a brand. So I hope that that's where the food movement's going. Yeah. Greenwashing, greenwashing makes that really tough because people can play a lot of games. Right. And I think that a lot of times it's like, sure, organic is a step forward because at the very, it is. It is. Yeah. Don't the, get me wrong. It's yeah, better than nothing. For, for sure. sure. At the very minimum, we're not using herbicides, pesticides, fungicides. So that's a oh, good no. step. You forward. are. You are. There's 160 allowed pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides under national organic program. They're not as gnarly as what people are using otherwise, but it's a major fallacy that like, oh yeah, it's organic. So there's no chemicals being applied. No, no, no. They're for They're sure. They're just approved. It's just approved list. Mm. Antibiotic free chicken. That sounds great, right? 
well, the bird can actually get antibiotics its entire life and still be labeled as antibiotic free, as long as the parts per billion of antibiotic residue at one time in a year test below the government set threshold, that's antibiotic free chicken, right? Oh my gosh. All of these games. <laughs> it's so discouraging. Grass fed beef. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. Grass fed. Uh -huh. That's what we want. I'm looking at grass. I'm, you know, I'm staring at grass fed cattle right now at my field. No, no, no. Every cow was grass fed at some point in its life. It can be labeled that way. Right. But they can be grass fed. They can be finished in a feedlot for up to 90 days or 89 days. Right. They can eat corn and soybeans and get pumped with antibiotics yes. and, and hormones and all this stuff and still be labeled as grass fed. So it just really sucks. It's like, yeah, this capitalist, I don't know. It doesn't even feel like conscious capitalism. It's just oh, like no. this extractive capitalist model that takes whatever term or certification and boils it down to the lowest cost to maximize mm -hmm. their short-term profit. It's just like this really sad system that's evolved. Yeah. Know thy farmer. I get it too. I, it is, it's, a, it, it can seem like a never ending mountain to climb and all this stuff. And like, right. I would just say, start one at a time, get yes. to know one product. And yeah. farmers are honestly, they're like some of the salt of the earth, like best people ever. If you meet them at the farmer's market and they're offering to take you on a tour, to have you out, that's probably a really good sign. Even if you don't ever go, the fact that they <laughs> offer it is like a great yes, sign. You know? It means they, they have a farm, which is a big step up, but that they would actually have somebody onto their fields and stuff. Plug to Parker Pastures, Gunnison, Colorado. Yes. Um, super, super cool regenerative beef outfit out of Gunnison. If you're in the Colorado area, yeah, I would rather people don't buy from me and they buy mm. from a local farm that they yes, know. Yes, of course. And then we will fill in the gaps on the busy mom in New York City. That's like, I yeah. Or I just need a consistent subscription that can like ship to my doorstep mm -hmm. kind of thing. Like, yes, that's why we are there. But go to getrealchicken.com. It's a site that like 900 of us pastured poultry farmers created oh, to cool. list out across the country and really actually across the world where these local farms are. And some offer home delivery, some you're going to have to go pick it up from their place or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a wild world out there. But yeah, know thy farmer. I'm not trying to say it's impossible. Like that, that's what we should all work towards. It's just sure. Don't put it on yourself to get that done in one day. It's not possible. <laughs> See, know. that's Work my, your way into it. that is me though, Paul. I'm like coming back and I'm like, okay, raw milk. I need my beef. I need my chicken. Like I I, I, I'm getting like everything, but I will say this too. When you start this search around your area, number one, the first thing that I did was posted in like a mom's Facebook group, all these Metro Denver moms. And I'm like, let's talk sustainability and knowing your farmer, what do you guys do? So make it easier on yourself because guess what? If someone asks that question in a Facebook group I'm in, you better believe I'm going to share all what my resources. That? Like people are so passionate about this movement that they will tell you. So start there, make it easier on that. yourself. Other people have probably done research for you. And then number two, a lot of times I totally agree. Let's do one thing at a time, make it doable for yourself. But also a lot of times you can get multiple things from one person. So I'm getting my raw milk from Ebert Farms in Colorado and they have eggs they have pastured eggs, they have whole milk that's raw, and then they also make yogurt. So I can get three things from one person. And then a lot of times too, people are doing beef, they're doing chickens, they're doing poultry. So you can find a mega supplier, a kind of farmer and totally. knock out a few things at one time for sure.
And think about what you're doing when you put those dollars into your community, into a local farm versus, again, not knocking Whole Foods, but if you were to go to Whole Foods and now you're paying a distributor and a retailer and like all these middlemen that are like in their ivory towers somewhere off in like Austin and New York City, or the model of going direct to your farmer, like supporting them and their family and like putting that money back in your community, that's regenerative capitalism too. Yes. And the farmer isn't paying the distributor. They're not paying the shipping. So they are actually also benefiting more heavily than if you were to buy the exact same product at the grocery store, for sure. Yeah, they're getting more of that dollar, for sure. Yeah. There are companies like you that you're making enough chicken and you're shipping across the US and you're making it accessible. You and I met at a conference a month ago and I came back and I'm like, I want to know as many of my farmers as I can, you know? So I'm now on that journey. I literally today ordered raw milk from a local farm. Amazing. It's fantastic. I'm just like so excited. And so now I'm going to get to know those farmers, right? And so I do think that that is still a way to go. That is my personal goal. And I'm also lucky that I get to chat with my farmers like you, but I think it's cool that you're combining all the things. Like you can be someone's local farmer who's the busy mom in New York City who doesn't have time or the capabilities to go out into rural New York and meet her chicken farmer. It's like, meet farmer Paul. Here he is. (laughs) You see on live stream what he's doing. You can order his chicken. So I do feel like transparency is the future. And that's the only way. Honestly, I feel like Americans and anyone, we just have to be aware of the atrocities in order to enact change. So hopefully more and more, we will all start going back to our roots. We'll start going back to the way that our grandparents and great grandparents did things in terms of farming and what we There's eat. Some wisdom there. Yeah. And 100%. all the things. Okay. So tell us about your mobile chicken coops. And also too, like you were saying, you get some pushback on they're in a coop. They do have things on the sides. They've got a roof. They've got some grains in the middle they can munch on. Talk to us just kind of about your setup and how you landed on this setup. Yeah. The whole system that we designed is really in direct contrast to the stationary system. Right. Where they keep birds in the exact same place for their whole life. We're like, no, 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 no. That's not how nature designed it at all. So our whole thing was let's look at nature as the optimal template and let's try to copy nature as close Mm, as possible. So birds are prey animals. They do need protection from predators. They need to be like out of blistering sun or driving rain. They need to be close to a food source. They need to be close to water. So what we do is a portable shade structure where the birds are actually, it's floorless, completely floorless. So the birds are living on pasture like 24 7 365 in southern california which is why we're here and not in colorado because i love colorado we just couldn't do it year round there (laughs) right the birds literally live on pasture so they're pecking and scratching they're foraging they're getting grasses bugs seeds worms flowers weeds they're getting their chicken feed grain that we talked about how that works before as well and then every single day every 24-hour period that shade structure it moves to a new spot so that they're getting off of their manure that manure is becoming like the fertilizer for the grass for the next time they come back 90 days later and then they have all these fresh forages so they're right back to that whole fresh thing of like grasses and bugs and like chickens are not vegetarians you never see a happier chicken than one that like finds a worm or finds a mouse or a snake they're they're crazy for that and so they're living this really fresh environment 
where like what you see behind me, if people are on podcasts, they won't see it, but you see like 6,000 birds in a covered structure where they have, it's not access to pasture. It's like they live on pasture 24 seven. It smells really nice in there. We're 26 times lower ammonia level, which Mm. is crazy to think about. If you were to walk into an industrial house, even a really well-managed one, like your clothes will stink for many days afterwards. Like you might just need to throw them out. In this environment, when we do tours, you can sit in there. Like those are my kids in the background. A lot of times I'm like, hey guys, go play with the birds. I'll be back in an hour. And they just, they sit on the ground, they can play. It's like a clean fresh environment, you know, right. So nice to farm in that kind of a way. And then the birds get all the benefits of like shade and protection from really high winds or any really cold temperatures where we can roll up the sides and the curtain and keep the birds warm in that way. So it's a really different way, but I always say like, it's actually a really normal way. I feel like our right. way is normal and the other way is crazy, you know, yeah, absolutely. Really the other way around. So I'm like, totally. Our whole thing was we started with little 80 bird coops and that was all very manual and very expensive because it's just labor intensive and we're out there every day moving them by hand and stuff. And then we went to like a 600 bird system where we pulled it with a tractor and that made it a little bit better because we're doing 600 birds in the same time that we could do 80. But if you compare that to 24,000 birds that doesn't even have to get moved at all, it's like still so expensive. About five years ago, our goal became how do we build like a national brand that makes pasture-raised regenerative chicken more accessible and more affordable because came up with money. My mom would have never paid $35 for a whole chicken. It just wasn't in the cards for us, really. Right. You would have wanted to, but it's like they, we were middle-class family. Mm-hmm. Like it just, we had to stretch our food dollars and all that. So I, I completely felt bummed that we were selling food that my parents probably couldn't have afforded growing up. And it was like, oh, it's cool. I believe in what we're doing, but it's like kind of a bummer to me. And so like, okay, well, how do we take the principles of this movable thing and apply them to like a larger scale format to make this a product that's not just Whole Foods? Like, how do we get it to Trader Joe's? How do we get it to Sprouts? Mm-hmm. How do we get it to like places where people really do their shopping? And so it came back to this 6,000 bird system that you see behind me. It's 100% solar powered which sounds cool, but it's actually necessary because it's this thing that drives around out in the open field. So like, how could I plug it in? It drives itself as opposed to somebody having to get out there and drive all these independent units. And then it drives really, really slowly too. So like the birds just keep up with the coop. It takes about (laughs) seven minutes to move the whole length of the coop. So the birds are like, they see the fresh grasses, they kind of run up to the front, they get all stoked and the thing just moves very, very gradually. And then the feed, like it feeds itself essentially. So we fill right. up an auger, the auger pushes the feed out to all the feed pans. So it's not like we don't have guys that have to go in with buckets and manually fill them all up. So we just removed a lot of the manual human labor out of it. And we tried to combine the best of like pasture raised movable coops with the best of the industry using these fancy feed pans. And we have like a thermostatically controlled house. So the curtains roll up and down based on the temperature inside of the coop. We have like fans that turn on and off based on the temperature outside too. There's a lot of fancy, cool stuff that, that I feel is like is cool. appropriate tech or like responsible right. tech. Yeah. And our goal isn't to just grow like the fattest bird as cheap as possible. It's like, how do we maximize nutrient density? Mm-hmm. And our birds do take 10, 15% longer to grow. And I'm stoked on that. I actually think that's amazing. Right. Like I want right. that. I'm good with that. Sure. They grow a little slower in the winter than they do in the summer or the spring. I'm like, 
that's how it was meant to be. Like, it's great. I don't have a problem. Yeah, Yeah, that's nature. Yeah. So I know that you say like, we're doing our best to make pasture raised poultry more equitable, accessible and affordable for our people. On one hand, I think that you're doing your job of raising the chickens. That's all kind of all you can do. But I'm just curious your thoughts on if we do believe that this is the way that chickens should be, this is the way beef should be grown, all of these things. Currently, all this meat that I buy is not at a rate that the majority even of people in the US can buy. I know. So what does the process look like? What needs to happen in order to get all of our prices? Like, how do we move to having more of our meat grown regeneratively like this? And then also, how do we lower the prices? How, what does that look like? I love this topic. It's like such a fundamental thing that I feel like we got to wrestle with as a society right now, because there's three lovers, right? So we talk about this all the time. There's people like consumers they do probably need to pay a little bit more than the baseline of what they're paying right now. I'm not saying double or triple, but I think the cost of food has gotten to the point where it's not actually possible to do it sustainably or generously. So yes, consumers need to know and they need to pay a little bit more. Yeah. For like the last 10 years in the sustainable farming movement, I've heard a lot of farmers gripe that people are not willing to pay what it costs them to raise products. And I Mm. do get that, but I also think the second leg of the stool is like farmers need to innovate and they need to figure out how to bring some scale or some efficiency into the program to bring their prices down too. That would get me in a lot of trouble in the farming community to say that. Like people don't love to hear that. Sure. I obviously believe that because that's what we're trying to do. Like we're trying to combine biomimicry technology and scale to make things more affordable for more people. So what we're doing, there's a lot of cool companies trying to do things in the plant and animal world right now mm-hmm. to bring costs down. The third one, the one that I don't like is government. It does feel like government plays a role to at least protect some of the greenwashing that's happening right now. Yeah. So people are spending more. Like you look at, you look at caggers of like organic food and grass fed beef and like it's growing at 20% a year. That's a lot of growth in this space. That is Organic grows like 22% a year. People are spending their hard-earned money to try to get better food. And so I do think the government, even though I don't want to rely on salvation by legislation by any means, but it does feel like the government will need to play some role in making sure people actually mean what they say so that people aren't just spending extra money on stuff that means nothing. That's the three ways. I do think that like, this also gets me in hot water with like small scale regenerative ag. I think big ag has been the enemy for so many years to regenerative small-scale farms. Everybody's like, oh, big ag, they're the devil. They're like horrible. And I'm like, well, you can say that, but if we want to leave the world better for our kids, I think big ag needs to step in. I think they need to start doing things differently too. And we're actually, to be honest, we're starting to see that where it's like, I do think the Tysons, the Purdue's, Purdue is actually a company that we're helping right now. We're helping Purdue, who's the largest organic chicken company in the country, to do pasture raise and to like do regenerative. And I'm like, dude, if these big ag companies see this and they want to do it authentically, the small scale, like regenerative community needs to come alongside them and try to help out. That's Mm -hmm. how we actually change the world is we get big ag to do things differently so that the chicken you buy in Walmart is raised on pasture someday. And it is Mm -hmm. done regeneratively someday. And it's like, 
I, I just hope that, that it's I hope that it's demonizing them. Yeah, and but I do hope that it's not just to greenwash and it's not just so exactly. they can have you have your like Eglin's best over here and then you have the Eglin's best free range. And so yep. it's like I'm so on board with that. If it's not just this one product to fulfill the need and that growth that they're seeing in the market. And it's okay. Yeah. Let's start here and let's try to get all of it better. Totally. But then also I do think we're just subsidizing. We're subsidizing the wrong things in the United States. And 100%. we need to actually start thinking about what we were talking about with nutrient density and let's subsidize totally. the farmers doing the right thing. And I'm not in ag or you know in the government but it's like can we help people get started with small regenerative farms okay this was such a great conversation and i want to chat forever but you have chickens to raise so i'm gonna <laughs> ask you the two questions that i ask everyone so at the end of your life when you're looking back what will a successful life look like to you oh that's a great question I would say I'm a Christian. I try to follow Jesus. And if at the end of my life, I feel like I stewarded what I was given well, mm. then I'm stoked. I can't control a lot of these outcomes. Like right. my cliche answer would probably be, oh, that we like left the food system in a better place. Like, I, no, not really. If that's <laughs> like what God has for me and for my life, then cool. But at the same time, tomorrow he could be like, no, from now on, you're like done working and your wife's going to work and you stay home with the kids. And I'd be like, all right. That's my cards, you know, like that's what I'm dealt. So I feel like if I've stewarded well, like what I've been given, I feel like that's a success, successful life. I can't necessarily control a lot of outcomes. So did I give it my best? Did I like, did I like do the best with what I had? Then I would be really stoked. Yeah, that's so good. So two-parter here. What is something in your life you feel like recently you have been really intentional about? And what's something you'd like to be more intentional about going forward? Ooh. We have this really nice office in Temecula. It's like right downtown. There's like cool coffee shops right next to it and stuff. And I, I used to be there a lot. And then we started this orchard like out in the country a little bit more. And I started realizing that I just spend too much time inside. Even as a mm. farmer, I still have a lot of computer work That's to do. Funny. I have like a lot of, you know, right. it, it applies to everybody, probably more other people than me, but I've made a huge effort to spend as much of my day outside as possible. And so I like dialed in my Wi-Fi connection to hit this big outdoor area. And I just try to be in nature as much as I can. And even if it's just outside in a park or just outside anywhere, but I think intentionality around being outside and just like enjoying creation, that's been really important for me. Mm -hmm. Love that. Where could I be more intentional? Balance, this is kind of personal, but like balance is really huge for me. We're a father of four. Right. Yeah, my wife and I, have nine, six, four, and two. Wow. And so business is really important to me. Like I'm so passionate about changing the way the world eats and like changing the way we raise animals, but you can easily lose the forest for the trees. And like my yeah. first priorities, my kids and my wife and like just finding the right balance, which to me looks more like periods of like intense work and then periods yes. of like intense family time more yeah. than like perfectly balancing every single day. That's exactly how I feel. Yeah. So I feel like being intentional around vacations where the phone is turned off and like yeah. 
the email is not a thing. Yeah. I'm so guilty of like, we went, yeah. we went to Italy. We took the kids to Italy for a month last year. We were like, you know, we've been doing this farming thing for so long. We haven't really been able to do a ton of that type of stuff. Sure. But travel is so important to us. And the kids are at an age now where it's like great to get them out. Yeah. But it was so tempting. Like we were there for a month and you want to know what's going on. And I found myself on my phone a lot and like checking yeah. a lot. And so I would just say intentionality around like being really present in whatever I'm doing, whether that's work or family. But I hate the one foot in, one foot out. I know. Mentality. So that's hard. So. Yeah, I feel that too. So strongly. Okay, cool. Where can everyone listening get Pasture Bird? And where can we connect with you and Pasture Bird more? Yeah, everything's like all the normal places. I think Instagram and Facebook and YouTube. I personally got off of social media a long time ago because I was just like bumming on it. I just now, I just only post to LinkedIn which is like the weirdest social media ever. I, um, I hear people though. I know so many people who just have LinkedIn and I funny. actually think it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, there's no feed, like it's not interesting right. to scroll. So for me, it's interesting conversations, but no, passionbird.com. We've done a lot of work on the website. We have some really cool so information and our marketing folks are like killing it on there. We're doing the live stream on there. We have a lot of really cool bundles. I know we're launching a couple summer like grilling kits and outdoor yeah. cooking stuff. So definitely go check out passionbird.com. Another website that I recommend is at getrealchicken.com. Right. Find a local farmer in your area. If you're in SoCal or in the Southwest, by all means, like I want to be your farmer no matter where you are. But I would also love for you to find a local farmer. Getrealchicken.com is a really great resource for all things like local, small scale. And then let us fill in where that doesn't work. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Alrighty. Paul, thank you so much for sharing with us the unfortunate truth about chicken in America and for offering a better, healthier solution for us. Listeners, if you want to try Pasture Bird chicken, please be sure to check out the link in the show notes and support Pasture Bird just like Paul supported the show today. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next week.